Uh, let me put it to you that it's not that hard to do what Peter instructs uh, at the beginning of our passage, verse 13, to, to set our hope on God in a big picture sense. In a big picture sense, it's not that hard to set our hope on God. Therefore, Peter writes, in light of all that's been said in the chapter so far, as we've just been remembering with the children, this great mercy, verse 3, this new birth, this living hope, this inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, this coming salvation, the praise, glory and honour for the Lord Jesus Christ and for us, his people, when he's revealed in verse 7, this grace that the prophets search to find and that the angels long to look into in verses 10 to 12. It's not hard, in a big picture sense, to set your hope on that, to close your eyes and imagine and long for all that Christ will do when he returns, when all sin is wiped away, when creation is renewed, when his people will live with him in perfection for all of eternity. It's not hard to close your eyes and yearn for that. But what I think is hard for many of us, dare I say most of us, certainly for me, is to set our hope on God's grace in the daily grind, in the here and now, in the nitty-gritty of our trials and our frustrations. We can have great time in the word and prayer of a morning. We can relish wrestling with and for our brothers and sisters in prayer. We can get carried away singing God's praises together and know the deep blessing of serving together. But then that message that you've been dreading comes in. That morning of the awful meeting you've been fearing arrives. Or you simply remember that your aging mother is no better today than she was yesterday. That your wandering child is no less rebellious today than they were yesterday. That your levels of anxiety are no lower today than they were yesterday. That marriage, singleness, depression, divorce a dead-end job, feel no easier today than they felt yesterday. And this hope all comes crashing down. See, these trials that, that, um, that Dan was teaching us about last week that Peter refers to in chapter 1, verse 6, they don't feel so, so little, so, so for a while, when we're in the moment. They can feel all-consuming insurmountable, unbearable. And it's great to hope for the future, we think, to have our eyes on the prize, to, to think of that final mile of the marathon, of crossing the finishing line. But we're only on mile 10, mile 15 now. How are we ever going to get to that final mile? Is that hope for the future enough for the present? Well, if questions like these are, um, are in your mind, then, then I hope and I have prayed this week that there'll be words to encourage us in this scripture today. Because I think these are the sorts of questions that Peter anticipates as he moves from the sort of the gospel indicative, what we're to know, 
which we see in chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, to um, the gospel imperative, what we're to do with these glorious truths, uh, from verse 13 through to the end of, well, the end of the letter, really. And Peter gives us uh, four commands in this passage. Uh, two of them are quite brief, sort of summary instructions, and they kind of top and tail the passage in verse 13, uh, and then in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Uh, and there are two in the middle, which are a bit sort of chunkier, a bit longer. Uh, one takes us from verse 14 to 21, and the other from verse 22 to 2 verse 1. And they sort of flesh out a bit more how we are to set our hope on the coming grace. Uh, we'll spend most of our time in those middle two. Um, but just before we get into verse 14, uh, just a couple of brief observations from verse 13. Um, we are told to set our hope on the coming grace. And we are told in what manner to set our hope on the coming grace. We are told to set our hope on the coming grace, and we're told in what manner to do that. Um, in my experience, you don't tend to have to be told to do something unless you're not doing it. And you don't, have to be, you don't tend to have to be told to do things that are quite easy and obvious to do. You just get on with it without needing instruction. Um, I don't have to be told by my wife Charlotte to do the washing up when we've had friends round for dinner. Uh, she did the cooking, so I do the washing up. It's straightforward, it's simple, I just get on with it normally. <laughs> so the fact that we are told to set our hope on the coming grace, well, I actually find that quite encouraging because uh, I think that implies that this may not be the easiest, the most natural thing for us to do. It might be a bit hard to set our hope on the coming grace. And we're also told in verse 13, in what manner to do it. And therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And the, uh, the Greek phrase translated alert um, is apparently a, a figure of speech. It means to, to gird up your loins. And think of the first century man uh, lifting up his long robe, robe and tucking it into his belt so that he's ready for action ready to run. We are to gird up the loins of our minds, to be alert and ready for action. Think of, uh, of when you get in the car for a long drive late in the evening, and you kind of give yourself a shake, you get your limbs moving, you turn up the music, you drink some caffeine, so that your mind is ready and alert. And we're to be fully sober in our manner. We're to be in our right minds, thinking clearly, uh, not intoxicated, but broader than that, sensible, ordered, self-controlled, careful, ready for action, focused on the task ahead of us. And again, that suggests to me that setting our hope on the coming grace might not be the easiest and the most natural thing to do. This isn't some, some passive, bland, serene, wishful thinking, see what happens, tomorrow's a new day, naively optimistic kind of hope. It's serious. It's focused. A practical decision to hold on to what you know to be true, despite everything in the here and now seeming to tell you to give up. This is a hope for the struggling, not just for the wet behind the ears and naive. We're to set our hope 
on the coming grace. Peter will spend much of the rest of the letter spelling out how, uh, jumping into various scenarios, various trials that we might face, face in our lives, and showing practically what hoping in God as the elect exiles that we are, in chapter 1, verse 1, might look like in those circumstances. Uh, but I think in the uh, second half of chapter 1, it, we're slightly more in the realm of, sort of introductory principles. Um, and so the first one, verses 14 to 21, live like God. We are to live like God. Uh, look down with me from verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Because we are now God's children. Verse 14. Because we have been adopted into his family, we are to live differently. How? Well, we're to live like our dad. We're to live like God. Although the grammar of our English translations doesn't make it obvious. The key instruction is actually this one in verse 15. That's what the rest of these three verses hang around. Be holy in all you do. If we want to set our hope on the coming grace in a manner that's alert and fully sober, we must be holy. And in many senses, that instruction will become as, as no surprise. Peter quotes it straight out of Leviticus chapter 11, verse 30, 44, when God gives the law to Moses on Sinai. And we see it again and again in Scripture. But what does it mean to be holy? I think it means at its core to be different, a different kind of person, to stand out from the crowd to be like God in the way we conduct ourselves and live our lives. And it's interesting that Peter doesn't go on to give a list, a sort of a menu of holy practices from which you can choose. You know, make your quiet times daily, make them longer, go to prayer meetings, up your giving, take up a new area of service, watch your temper, be more patient, uh, all, all good things to do. But Peter doesn't give us a sort of menu of options to choose from. Because holiness, well, it's not, it's not like a bit of spring cleaning. Tidy a few things up, freshen up, get your life looking a bit more squeaky clean, a bit more ready for visitors. No, holiness is about our hearts. In verse 14, Peter goes to our hearts as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. The word that's translated in evil desires could be translated longings, cravings, loves. Do not go to the longings, the cravings, the loves that you once had. Holiness is an issue of the heart. No amount of scrubbing skirting boards is going to solve it. To be holy is to give up the wrong desires of the world, the wrong desires of those in the world around us, the wrong desires that were once ours, the desire to get to the top, be thought the best, have the most, or have what they have, hurt back 
when they've hurt me. Get my own way. Be in control. Serve me first and me foremost. Though our holiness or lack of will come out in our actions, our words, our conscious thoughts and feelings, it doesn't begin there. And to try and deal only with those external things will be in vain. To be holy begins in our hearts with the slow, painful work of teasing out what our hearts really want, if we care to admit it, our loves, our longings, our dreams, and holding them up in the clear light of the gospel and evaluating them and then giving them up in the spirit's strength when they're out of line with God's will. Where, I wonder, do you need to do some heart-examining work this week? Because it's so easy, isn't it, to blame our sin on others or on our circumstances, our history, our present family, our family of origin. And we're so busy seeing their hypocrisy, their selfishness, their cruelty, their deceit, that we totally bypass our self-righteousness, our anger, our bitterness, our envy. At least I know I do. In what areas of life, in what, what moments of struggle and sin do you need to strip away the circumstances and just look at what's going on in your heart and repent of it? Yes, they shouldn't have done what they did. They shouldn't have said what they said. Yes, that thing that happened to you was awful. Yes, it really is hard to endure what you are enduring. But God doesn't make us sin, however hard those things might be. It's the evil desires of our heart that lead us to sin. So let us look deeply, find our sin, and repent, that we might better live like God, our Father. And having said in verse 14, that we should be holy because God is our Father. Peter gives three more reasons in verses 17 to 21 that we should live like God. Uh, number one, God's our judge. Number two, God is our redeemer. And number three, God has a plan. Uh, first, God is our judge. Verse 17, since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, of course, we know that Jesus' death and resurrection at the cross guarantees our salvation. God will accept us on the final day. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Peter can't be telling us to, to call into question that salvation. Be holy, lest God strike you down. That would undermine everything that the Bible teaches about our salvation. But the Bible does also teach that there will still be a form of, of weighing up by God of believers. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 10 is a good place to go. All believers will be granted salvation, but God will examine how we have used what he has given us, as we see in the parable of the talents how faithfully we've endured, whether we've grown as Christians and how much, how we've used the gifts he's given us, our witness to him, and he will reward us accordingly. 
So I think there's just a gentle warning here that God is not some sort of soft-touch, doting grandfather who will slip your lollipop when your parents said no more snacks before dinner. Being adopted into God's family doesn't mean a free license to do whatever you want now you've got your dad's credit card. God's children will be known by their resemblance to their father. And he's a father who will not show favoritism, but will weigh up all things impartially. So we're to be holy, like he is holy. And he's our judge, and he is also our redeemer. In verses 18 and 19. For you know, Peter writes, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter takes us here to the world of the slave market, a place in practice it may be hard to imagine, so wicked does it seem, and yet we know that, that even today, around the world, in our, own, in our own nation, there are forms of slavery and human trafficking. But, but Peter asks us to imagine life as a slave, considered a piece of property, by your human owner, bought and sold for pounds and pennies. And now imagine, for that lucky few, how precious that handful of silver and gold would be that were paid into your master's hand to buy your freedom, to set you free, to redeem you, that you might be a slave no more. Now compare that paltry handful of silver and gold coins with what your God has given to set you free, the life of his own son, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless Passover lamb. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved at great cost. We are dearly precious to God. So let us not take lightly what God has given up. We might be his holy children. God is our judge, he's our redeemer, and he has a plan. Verses 20 and 21, he has a plan. Our trials may feel like they've come out of nowhere. Our lives have not turned out how we planned them. But this hope we have comes from the God who has a plan. Verse 20, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope are in, aren't in some, some temporary person, some new short-lived idea. They're in the God who made his plan before the beginning of time, who chose his son and chose us to be found in his son and then revealed him at just the right time. And he knows exactly what trials have come our way and will come our way. We may not, but he knows why. He knows for how long they will last. He knows what he is doing through them. And he is orchestrating all of our lives, all of history, in his great plan to bring glory to his name and good to those who believe in him. So we can take confidence and we can be holy because our God as a plan. We are to set our hope on the coming grace 
by living like God. And I think reading those ver- these verses, where I so often go wrong when I'm struggling, is that I forget what I think Peter clearly shows us here through all these different metaphors and similes. And that is that I forget that I stand before God first and foremost. I think in struggles, it becomes all about the person I'm struggling with, or the, the thing, the situation that I'm struggling with. And that, that dominates my view. That becomes the biggest, the most difficult thing. And I forget that I stand before God first and foremost, before the one who is my father, my judge, my redeemer, and the one with a plan. And I desperately need God to change my perspective and to remind me of that in my struggles, that I might see him bigger and see other people and other problems as smaller. So we're to live like God. Secondly, we're to set our hope on the grace that is coming by loving like God. We're to love like God. Uh, Chapter 1, from verse 22 down to 2, verse 1. Let me read verse 22 again. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. How do we set our hope on the coming grace? How do we do miles 16 to 24 in this marathon? We do it by loving each other. By loving each other deeply. Note the emphasis that Peter puts on this command. He speaks of sincere love. He says love deeply. Love from the heart. And he goes on, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Maybe hard to see the link immediately, but I think Peter's saying that God's eternal, enduring imperishable, unruinable word, as he quotes from the beautiful poetry of Isaiah 40, well, that eternal word has given you birth into eternal, enduring, imperishable, unruinable life. Just as that word is imperishable, so now is your life that Christ has given you through it. You are not what you were. Your life now is of a wholly different order. It will last for eternity. And this Christian community that you are part of, this church that Christ is building, will endure for all of eternity. These Christians that we are sat around now, who knows, we could be enjoying each other's company and worshipping alongside each other forever. Isn't that an incredible prospect? And what a different mindset that calls us to take in a transient city like Oxford when we so easily slip into a consumer mindset about church. We may only be in this specific local church in this city for a few months, a few years, a few decades. But there's little community here 
is part of the community that God has created that will last for all of eternity. So let's love each other deeply from the heart. Let's love each other like God loves us. And again, it's one of those things that, that's easy to do big picture, I think, in principle. Easy to do when we find, uh, find each other lovable and when we're in a good place ourselves. And we love to have fellowship. It's precious to worship together. Uh, we love to lift each other up in prayer uh, and to remember good times we've had together and serve alongside one another. But it's not always easy. It can uh, be rather harder at the nitty-gritty level when we're tired, when we're struggling, and so are they. When words are spoken in haste, when actions tell a different story, when personalities clash, when different backgrounds, different cultures, different theologies come up against each other, and perspectives differ, and conflicts arise. By all means, take someone a meal, send them a message, chat to a stranger over coffee, invite someone around for a meal, all great ways to love each other. But the real test of our love, well, Peter takes us to the heart again in verse 22. Love them with your actions, but don't just love them with your actions, because actions can be empty. Love them from the heart. And so I think we're called to ask ourselves how we feel about other people when they get in our way, when they say things that hurt, when they let us down. It's in those moments. I think that we need to read Peter's words in chapter 2, verse 1 carefully. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It's in those moments where relationships are struggling that we must examine our hearts, not just blame them, not just blame the situation, the circumstances, but examine our hearts and check for malice, ill will, pushing harm on someone else, deceit, saying something to their face while we know that we mean something else, or speaking and acting with bad motives, or hypocrisy, Claims that, that prove empty in the cold light of day. Or envy. Wishing others good was ours. And slander. Malicious talk. Gossip. Backbiting. So often dressed up as, a, as loving concern. It's so easy to, uh, to gloss over. Verses like this, list of vices. I often find myself doing that when I read the Bible. But when we stop and we examine our hearts, when I think back even just over the last week, I think I can probably put a person's name to each of those things that I know that I felt against someone this past week. Let's examine our hearts. Because we might expect to be treated like this, to be rejected, cast out, ostracized by a secular world which hates God and hates us. But the relationships we are to find in Christian community within the church, are to be utterly different, marked by deep love, love from the heart, as we love like God. 
So who are you struggling to love at the moment? Who are you struggling to get along with, to see eye to eye with? Who pushes your buttons, winds you up, gets on your nerves? Who is the reason why you need to hear 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1? Um, if the answer is no one, then I think I've got two questions. Um, first, are you being honest with yourself? I don't think Peter's presenting the instruction of verse 1 as, as maybes for a few of the Christians he's writing to. I think he presents them as a command for all of us to make sure as a body and then each of us individually that we are ridding ourselves of those things. And then secondly, are you truly part of Christian community? Are you truly part of Christian community? Have you settled in, in this church or in another church if you're just visiting? If you're trying out churches, will you settle? Will you commit? Here or elsewhere? And then if you are committed, are you known? And do you know others? Have you committed to relationships? Because I think if we really live alongside each other, we will come into the bumps and scrapes that are inevitable in deep relationships. And we will need to hear these words. In the church, we have a community that will last for all eternity. And so it is worth getting these relationships right, honouring God through them. And this is, Peter says, what it looks like to set your hope on the coming grace in the middle of your trials. It looks like living like God, being holy, and loving like God, loving from the heart. Not, not never leaving your study, because you're so caught up in Bible study and prayer. Not signing up to 10 new rotors, getting involved in new parachurch ministries. Not quitting your job, selling your house, and moving to an unreached nation, where God might call us to do any one of those things. But setting your hope on God, as Peter describes it here, Looks like living like God and loving like God. It's simple, but it isn't easy and it isn't straightforward. But we have all that we need to do it. Because Peter finishes in verse 2 of chapter 2 like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. If we want to set our hope on the coming grace, if we want to grow in our salvation, we're going to need some help. We need to come to Christ and depend on him. We need to come like a newborn baby, knowing that it needs its mother's milk and knowing that it cannot do anything to, to grow and feed itself. It is utterly dependent on its mother's milk. And so we need to come like newborn babies to Christ and feed on him through his word, through preaching, through prayer, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, in Christian service, in church community. And he will grow us into our salvation. For we have tasted that the Lord is good and so we crave everything he has to offer and nothing else that he might make us holy 
he might enable us to live like him and love like him. Just as Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the living hope that we have because Christ has risen from the grave. And we thank you for these commands, these commands to live like God and be holy and to love like God and love each other deeply. Help us. Help us to crave your spiritual milk, to feed on your word and the blessings of being part of your people that we might better live like you and love like you, that we might grow up in our salvation. Amen.